0: If you are glad that heaven reached down and saved you, say a very loud amen. amen. We want them to be able to hear us up in room 212 when we say that, right? Cuz the Lord is so good. He's so good. Let's take our Bibles. We're going to be in 1st Chronicles 11 this morning. Again, that's the passage we started last week. I thought about starting Christmas today, but for some reason I'm just not bearing my mind yet and The Lord really impressed upon my heart that we should come back to this passage. In our study last week, for those of you that weren't here, we saw how David and his mighty men were blessed and were used of God, not only because of their courage, but because as we saw in the text, the Lord's hand was with them. And we said that that was one of the greatest things that we really um, could be said about us in our lives, is that Every minute of every day, we sense that the Lord's hand of anointing and hand of leading and hand of blessing is upon our lives. But that only comes when we are completely sold out, when we're so fully given, we're so completely given in every aspect of our heart and mind and life that nothing can be distinguished that's not of the Lord. In other words, there's no separation between us and the Lord. There's no detachment from his presence. There's no sense of not being completely filled up with the Spirit. Now, that was certainly characteristic of David's life. And we know we've heard the phrase many times that David was a man after God's own heart, which is not a phrase that you just throw around. But we certainly know that David's life, apart from the two major sins that he had, the sin with Bathsheba and the sin of the census uh, David's life was completely given to the Lord we have song after song that's written where he praises the Lord and extols the Lord and lifts the Lord on high. We look at his kingdom, which was established as an eternal kingdom forever, out of which Jesus came out of the line of David. So everything that we could say about David would be rock solid in terms of his commitment to the Lord. And that was what distinguished him so much from Saul. Because Saul, who uh, preceded him, was the people's choice. You remember that he was good-looking and tall, and when the people said, we want a king, God said, we don't, you know, I don't want you to have a king. I'm your king. They said, no, that's great. You know, we, we love the whole theocracy thing, God, but actually we want somebody here to lead us. You remember that the people wanted somebody that was kind of popular and outstanding, kind of the big man on campus, but God had different ideas, and God said, you know, you choose based on the outward appearance, but I choose based on the heart. And here's this shepherd boy who was kind of neglected and forgotten by his family, kind of looked down on by his older brothers. His dad had a special place of sorrow for him, but didn't think much was going to come of his life. But God looked at him and said, that's the one that I have. That's the one whose heart and mind is completely given to me. God says in Deuteronomy 5, that's what I want my people to be like. I want my people to be so distinct and to have such a heart that would fear me and keep my commandments. And he affirms that in Ezekiel. He says, what I've done for you is I've given you a new heart. I filled you with my spirit so you can be set apart and so you can be distinct. So that means those of us who love the Lord and when we give our lives wholeheartedly to him, in other words, not just partially, not just, well, this is my time on Sunday, and I'll do my church thing, not just, well, I'll give him 15 minutes tomorrow and read his word a little bit and pray, and then that'll be it, I'll go live my life. That, that's not what a true believer lives like. true believer is every moment of every day consumed with the thought of the Lord. That doesn't mean you're going to spend nine hours studying his word tomorrow. There is a practical reality of life. What it does mean is that everything that we think, everything that we breathe, everything that we're about, who we are is indistinguishable from Christ. Now that's what God has called us to. And it's when he says, I'll give you the desires of your heart, he's not just saying, well, now I'm your magic genie. Whatever you want, I'll give to you. He says, I'll give you the desires of your heart but there's a contextual qualification for it. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, God's not just going to say, well, now that you're a believer, now that you've given your life to me, I'll give you whatever you want. You name it, you got it. He does say, when we delight ourselves in him, when our preoccupation is him, when our joy comes from being in his presence when everything that we delight in comes and centered in the Lord, not in the world, not in us, not in relationships, not in having things, when it's all delighted in him, that's when God moves and works in a very powerful way. Now, this is proven in our passage in the morning. And that's a long introduction to get us to First Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 15. Because here we have this kind of odd account of David in this cave at Adullam. And it comes right after the whole victory in the barley field that we studied last week. And you would imagine, after such a great victory, as he and Eliezer, remember, the image stood back-to-back, I picture, stood back-to-back in the barley field fighting, and David speaking words of encouragement, hey, this is where I took on Goliath and stood for the Lord. You remember that whole story? That That after that victory, that there would be some kind of ego trip well, we're unstoppable now. Look at what the Lord did. The Ashobium killed 300 people with a spear. Eleazar, you and I took on all those Philistines. Look, we defeated them. They're retreating. You would think at this point that pride would kind of rear its ugly head. But I want you to notice this morning, and we're going to get a spiritual principle out of this, the preoccupation of David's heart. Look at what he's thinking about in the wake of this victory. I've got my small Bible again. I'm have to borrow from somebody. 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse 15, if I can find verse 15. There we go. Now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam while the army of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was there in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving, verse 17, and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink. From the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Then he would not drink it. These things. The three mighty men did. Now you say, all right, it's December 5th, 2010. Why in the world, did, uh, I'm going to ask for hands who say this, why in the world would we study the strange passage? Anybody thinking that as we read? Wow, that's impressive. I know somebody did. What a strange passage. David's sitting in a cave, says he wants something to drink. The three guys go down to Bethlehem, get it, they bring it back. Here's your water. David says, no, I can't drink that, pours it out. You know, what in the world does that have to do with our lives? Now, there's a spiritual principle here, and I'm going to encourage you to write some things down this morning so you're not just being a passive listener. There's a spiritual principle that comes out of this text that's very simple. But don't miss it because it's so obvious, and don't miss it because you've heard something like it before. Because I really believe the Lord needs us to hear this this morning. What we learn from this account is that what we desire... And what we pursue and what we prioritize is a graphic indication of the true nature of our heart. What you pursue this week, what you think about, what you desire, what you prioritize, what is important to you is an indication of what is going on in your heart. Now here's the added kicker to that. The older we get, Not only do we not hide what is not godly as well as we think, but as we get older, eventually we don't really want to hide it. Do you get that? As we get older, the things that aren't pleasing to the Lord, the things that aren't given to the Lord, we not only don't hide them quite as well as we think we do, but at some point, and this is kind of odd, you would think it would be the other way around, we kind of say, mm, I don't really care if people know about that. It doesn't bother us. It doesn't worry us. Eventually we think, well, everybody will just kind of tolerate it because, goodness knows, they got their own issues. And they're probably not thinking about me and probably not worried about me, and it's not really that bad anyway. See, the tendency to be kind of lazy and indifferent in our passion to the Lord is one of the most dangerous things, and I would say maybe the most dangerous thing that the devil can do against us. It's the area of relentless attack against us. Not, hey, here's sin, do this. Because any believer that's mature knows that we should flee sin. And it's not doing things that are openly offensive to God because we're aware that people are watching and we're aware that we need to have a witness. And we're aware that, you know, common sense says you just don't do those things. So how's the devil going to attack He's going to go after our passion. He knows that he can't steal our salvation. He knows that he can't vacate the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because that's guaranteed and it's locked in. And he knows that a faithful child of God is not really going to consistently go back to the bondage and pollution of sin. So what's his attack going to be? How's he going to go after us? He can't steal our salvation can't get the Holy Spirit out of our lives. He knows that we're really not going to just go back to jail and say, well, I'm just going to be stuck in sin for the rest of our lives. So what does he have left? All he can really do is harm us by influencing our attitude and our proximity to the Lord. The only thing he can do is mess with our minds, to put it in the vernacular. To say, all right, Rhodes, you think you're such a great believer. You've been saved 37 years. You should probably have this doubt, right? I know I can't steal salvation. And I know I can't get the Holy Spirit out of you. And I know you're not going to really commit heinous sin. But I can change your attitude. And I can cause you to drift away from the Lord. And if I can influence your relationship, where you start to take the Lord for granted, and you're careless about sin, and casual about your calling, that'll not only hurt you, but it'll help my work. And if he can get us to buy into the idea that the Lord isn't really bothered by, quote, Christian worldliness, which is an oxymoron, that if, that if we don't really feel bothered by that, that God doesn't actually want us to be holy and set apart to him, then the devil can then show the world that living for Christ doesn't look any different than living for yourself. So he's messing with our attitude. He's affecting our faith. He's trying to convince us that the Lord doesn't need to be a priority. He's getting us to be indifferent about sin. And he's saying to us, You don't really need to be set apart because it's not politically correct and people will think you're weird and you don't really want to have that level of devotion anyway. So do your own thing. Think about yourself. Neglect God. And he's careful of how he pushes that because he knows that at some point our wisdom's going to kick in and we're going to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's how he drives against us. But God says, I want something different for your life. I want a life that is sanctified. I want a life that is set apart. I want a life that is like Christ. I want a life that is passionate about me. A life that literally hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That's what I want from you. Now, here in chapter 11, verse 17, that's what's going on with David. And David's still in the midst of the battle with the Philistines this time they're in the Valley of Rephidim. It was near Pastamon, where we saw last week they had the battle. George, do you happen to have that slide? Did it come through or no? This is the this is the Valley of Rephidim, and you see the little red thing. That is Adullam. Okay, the Valley of Rephidim is where you see the brown. So all through there, you see Bethlehem. If you can see that up at the top right corner. So they're fighting this battle between the Red and Bethlehem, if you draw kind of a line from north to south in between there. That was the Valley of Rephaim. So that's where they are on the map. Now David, at this point, is in the cave at Adullam. This whole area was a very fertile region of Israel. When you get down near the Dead Sea, which you see to the far right of the slide, it's very stark down there. It's very brown. It's rocky. There's no vegetation unless you get near the Jordan River. But up where the red dot is, that's very fertile and lush. And it's why there was always a conflict in that area between the Israelites and the Philistines, because everybody wanted to control where the good crops were. So this is the land where they're constantly kind of battling. Now, at this point, the Philistines, we see in the text, are occupying Bethlehem, which you see upper the right corner. And that was hard for David because Bethlehem was called the city of David. It was where he was born. It was his hometown. And it was where he had been anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. David now is at Adullam in the red. So he's about 13 miles away from Bethlehem. And as he's sitting in this cave, we don't know whether that was a strategic move to plan and kind of oversee the valley or whether he was hiding. The text doesn't tell us. But at this point, he's hiding in the cave. If you have the next slide, if you don't mind, you see what Adullam looks like today. You can see that you've got the brown of the of the desert, but you've also got lush vegetation there. So this is very similar, probably, to the view that David has at this point. And he's sitting in this cave, and he's distressed that the Philistines are in his town, but he's also encouraged that the Lord has just given them. A victory, But at this point, look back at the text now, he is not preoccupied with the battle. He's not sitting with his mighty men saying, all right, what's our next strategic target? How are we going to take, sweep down through the valley, take this? How are we going to push back the Philistines? We should probably talk to Joab and some of the other commanders, Abner, and, and try to figure out what our battle plan is. He's not thinking about this. At this point, his heart is preoccupied with something far more important. And it seems very odd in the middle of the battle after the great victory at Passtamon that the next thought in David's mind is boy, I'd love to have some of that water from Bethlehem. Boy, I just I just wish could go back to my hometown and go to that well by the gate and just get some of that water. Strange because this is not exactly close by. It's not like oh, I wish I could walk out right now into that hallway and get some nice cold ice water. That's doable, right? Nobody leave. Stay where you are. But we could do that. We could just walk outside and get some water. But he's talking 13 miles away. So it seems kind of an odd preoccupation of his mind. But there was something about that well. There was something about the water that evoked a thirst that David here has, that can only be satisfied by that water, it wasn't because there wasn't water close by, because as you can see on the slide, the area was very fertile, where there's fertility in the desert, there has to be water, so it wasn't like there weren't other wells or other rivers he could go to, it wasn't like he's just nostalgic at this point, certainly you remember the water being great, but, but there's something deeper at play, because of the lengths that the three mighty men to go get it. It's like David just said, oh, so homesick. I wish we'd go home. It's far more than that. The word crave here, if you have a New American Standard, and I don't know what it is in the NIV. What is in the NIV, guys? Is it long, or I should have looked it up. It's crave in the, in the New American Standard. And crave's really the best word there. It means to long for to such an extent that it's almost to the point of coveting. So he's just pining for this water. He's not just saying, I'm thirsty. I wish I had some good water. You know, the water in Bethlehem is really good. He said, oh, oh, I wish I had that water. Do you remember, guys? Remember the water in Bethlehem? Oh, it's a sweet and wonderful. I, I wish I had that. It held an experience. There was something about that water that was so important to him that he craved it. A part of good Bible study is asking questions of the text. So one of the questions we might ask at this point is, of all the things that the Holy Spirit might want to teach us December fifth, two 2010, why would he believe it's important to tell us about David wanting a drink of water from a well 13 miles away? Why is that in the text? Do you ever ask that question as you're reading? Why is this here? And why is Rhodes preaching about it at Christmas time? Well, why? All right, we just had the battle. I get the battle. I get the Eliezer thing. I get the mighty thing. I get the barley field. Now that's a little different, my thinking. And, and, and all that's good. But why now does the Holy Spirit feel inclined to tell me that David wants a drink of water? Nothing that the Spirit puts in Scripture is coincidental, correct? Say amen. All Scripture is given to be profitable for our learning and maturation. Amen. All right, so this is not just a minor detail. When we read this, the Holy Spirit says, pay attention to that, because I put it in there. I want you to learn something out of that account that you wouldn't otherwise know. So it's important to see the scriptural principle behind it. And to see the scriptural principle behind it, we first have to understand how God places importance on the concept of water. Water in Scripture almost always indicates the fresh work and fresh provision of God. If you're taking notes, write that down. Water in Scripture almost always indicates the fresh provision and fresh help and fresh, uh, what word did I use, work of God. In the Garden of Eden, in chapter 2 of Genesis, it says because there was no rain and there was no one to work the land, That God brought a mist stuff from the ground to make the ground grow and fertile and to continue the work of life. When we see the flood, it's not only an act of God's judgment, it's also uh, the washing away of man's filth and God starting again and saying, I'm going to give you a second opportunity now. This is going to be new life and a new landscape. When the Israelites get to the Red Sea, God provides water. Harding to provide deliverance for his people and keep them moving toward the promised land. When they get to the Jordan River, once again, he parts the water and stacks them up miles away so the people can walk through. And as they're walking through, they grab 12 stones and place them on the other side as both a memorial and and an encouragement to move forward and occupy the land. When we get to the tabernacle and the temple, water is used to cleanse the priests and prepare them. To participate in God's atonement and spiritual restoration. We get to Mount Carmel where Elijah stood and defended the Lord. Remember he takes buckets of water and he pours them over the sacrifice. And then the fire comes down from heaven. And it says in the text it laps up the water. Because God is proving his power and his authority. And then he says go up and pray. And Elijah sees the little cloud like a fist. And then he says get down because rain's coming. Three and a half years it hadn't rained. Because it was an indication of the spiritual drought in Israel. God says, "It's about to rain. I'm about to do a work. Water was used to heal Bartimaeus' physical body, which was a metaphor for spiritual restoration. The disciples were constantly around water. And Jesus taught them spiritual lessons around the water in the Galilee region, which is such a beautiful area of Israel. They were out on the boat and they had the storm and he calmed it down to prove his power. Peter walked on the water and then took his eyes off Christ. And we have a lesson about faith. They're always around the water. Jesus goes to the woman at the well and he says, give me some water to drink. She says, why are you talking to me? And he says, well, you know, go get your husband. She says, I have not He says, you have five husbands. And then he talks to her about what? The living water. He says, I've got water to give you where you'll never have to draw from this well again. And then we have the picture of baptism, which is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the washing away of sins and the new life that happens in salvation. All throughout Scripture, it's a great word study, all throughout Scripture, water has the continuous message that God is doing a work of refreshing and reshaping and refining and recreating and restoring and changing lives. So where there is water, God is either about to do a work in a powerful way or he's about to teach us a deeper spiritual principle. That's why I love the harbor part of our name. Because it indicates that God wants to do a fresh work. Now, in the same way, look back at the text, in the same way, wells are all throughout Scripture. We're going to do a study of that sometime. We don't have time this morning to develop that out. But wells are an indication of the presence of water which you can see, you saw from the landscape, is very barren and dry. In a very hot, unforgiving, arid climate like Israel, you always wanted water. Water was power. So people would dig wells and they would have cisterns that would hold water. Armies and and travelers would camp near wells. Wars were fought over wells. And when you really wanted to stick it to your enemy, when you would take over their land, you would fill their wells with sand. So wells and water were very important all throughout Scripture, not to mention the fact of guarding against dehydration, which in Scripture is a symbol of spiritual barrenness. So we've got the image of the water. We've got the image of the well. We've got David craving this well, craving the water that comes from only that well that was sweet to him. Now we have to say to ourselves at this point, there's something the Lord needs me to know. Because God's just not throwing around the picture of a well and water and David in the cave and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a nice principle, but what's the bottom line? Well, the bottom line is we need to examine what wells we're craving and what wells we're drawing from. Are you drawing this week from the well of spiritual purity and the well of living water that helps you and sustains you and fills you and makes you more like Christ? Are you drawing from wells that are spiritually impure and tainted by sin. All throughout this next week, there are going to be a lot of wells that you long for. A lot of wells that you think, if I just had that, my life would be fulfilled. If I just had that, things would be so much better. We're always more aware of this, obviously, at Christmas, aren't we? The frenzy, the frenzy of shopping. I'm constantly amazed in the middle of a recession. The mall's packed. You would never know there's a recession, right? It's like all year we've said, well, I can't buy anything, even though we do. But now that it's December, I get to go nuts. So there's this sense of craving and longing for. But many times, guys, when we're craving those wells, they're bitter and they're toxic and they pollute our spirit. And they affect us in ways that harm us. When I was at Wheaton College, back in the dark ages of the 80s, long time ago, we had, when you turned on the tap in the dorm, sorry, I'm going to gross you out now, the water was like a brownish yellow. It was nasty. This was before Lake Michigan water was being pumped out to the suburbs and it was pure. I love Lake Michigan water. I think it tastes really good. When I go to other parts of the country, I'm like, ooh, your water stinks. It's horrible. It tastes bad. But back in the 80s, when you turned in the tap, the water was kind of yellow. It was very hard. You couldn't really get the soap out of your hair. You know what I'm talking about? And it tasted really horrible. I had a friend my senior year, and she went and bought, first time I'd ever seen one, one of those water purifiers that fits on your, on your spigot, on your, on your faucet. And we used to actually go up to our apartment and say, can we have some water because we need to boil something or we need to cook or we just need to drink something. This was before bottled water, right? It seems not that long ago. This is 25 years ago. You didn't walk in a store and buy bottled water. Why would you pay for water? It was absurd. So we didn't have bottled water. We drank soda all the time. I mean, bottle after bottle after bottle of sugar. No wonder I was so hyper and couldn't sleep at night. But when we really wanted water, we'd go up to our apartment. Can we had have some water. That's how valuable it was. To use the spiritual metaphor, the well, so to speak, at Wheaton was bad. And we didn't want to drink from it because it would make us sick. And yet now, listen, there are many wells in our life that we continue to drink from even though they're making us spiritually sick. They're polluting us. They're harming us. They make us feel kind of queasy in our stomach. They're affecting our mind. They're causing us not to be able to function as a believer should. And yet we keep going back and drawing from them. And why would we do that when the Lord says, I've got a well that's perfect for you. It's called my Holy Spirit. And I'll give you living water that you can draw from that will cause you to be healthy and strong, to walk as a believer, to know my will, to discern my word, to be able to share your faith And to be able to be the kind of believer that you're supposed to be. And you will never be thirsty. It will always refresh you. Because there's really only one spiritual well that can do this. It's the living water well. It's the well that the Spirit pours on us to make us whole. And Jesus says in John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water I'll give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now look back at the text because David at this point needs that kind of water. He's tired from his battle. He's weary from fighting the enemies of God who openly have opposed God. He knows the Philistines are still ticked about Goliath. They're still angry about the barley field. They love nothing more than to take him down. He's away from the refuge of his city, his hometown. He's overwhelmed by the demands of being king. He's responsible for these godly men who are ready to do whatever he asks. And he's thirsty for something that really satisfies. You would think in this moment, if we really want to assume his humanity here, you would think at this point he would start barking out some orders. Get some water for the king, okay? No, we're sitting in a cave, but I'm still the king of Israel. Give me some water. Or you would think that maybe he would come back and he would say, let's just see how mighty you guys are. You know what? Here's a good challenge. Let's really test your ability and your courage and your loyalty to me. I, I need you to go down to Bethlehem and get me some water. This will be our little, you know, our little physical challenge here. See how good you guys are. But that's not what he does. Look at the text. He says, ah, I just wish I had this water. It's more of a kind of an aside comment to himself than it is a demand or, a, or an order or a challenge to them. And I want to suggest to you this morning that I believe this is as much an expression of spiritual desire as it is physical. Turn over to Psalm 107 just for a minute. Let's see if I can read it. Psalm chapter 107. I want you to follow along as I read and listen to the words of the first nine verses. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the adversary, and gathered from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, Be delivered! He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city." Let them give thanks, verse 8, to the Lord for his loving kindness and his wonders to the sons of men. Look at verse 9 now. He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Can't you imagine as you look at those nine verses that that would be the kind of words that David wrote while he sat in the cave at Adullam? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His loving kindness and goodness is forever He delivers His people, but as they're wandering through the wilderness, as He is right now, He hears their cry, and He fills them. They're thirsty, and He satisfies them with what's good. As I looked at that passage, I thought, I wonder if David wrote that around this time. David's not just a shallow, spiritually inattentive person at this point. Everything in his mind is connected to the spiritual. He's always looking for the lessons that the Lord wants to teach out of everyday life. So it's easy to parallel Psalm 107, nine, the last verse we read, back to First 1 Chronicles 11.17. Yeah, he wants to drink water. Yes, the best water he knows is in Bethlehem. But I have a hard time believing that the Holy Spirit would have given us that detail to study in 2010. If it was just about David being thirsty, there has to be something deeper there. Because I believe, as you look at the text of 1 Chronicles 11, I believe this is an expression of a deep longing to be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the place where God had worked and blessed his life the most. That means it's not just a personal desire. That's why I believe when he gets the water and they bring it back, uh, we walked 26 miles. Here's your water. What would be the worst thing somebody could do to you if you just walked 26 miles to bring the water? For them to go, that's so nice of you. What? What do you do? What's he doing? do? We just walked 26 miles through the Philistine. He just poured it out. Why? We get the suggestion in the passage that it was a drink offering to the Lord. But I think it's because the water, the the physical, tangible water, wasn't really the issue. I think the issue was that David had a great desire to be in the presence of the Lord in the place of greatest blessing. That's why he says, Lord, I can't possibly drink this. These men sacrificed everything. But my heart is committed to you And I wouldn't feel right to drink this water that I expressed I wanted in just a side comment. And guys, I'm so grateful. You don't know how it helps my heart to know that you would make such effort. But listen, this is my drink offering to the Lord. I would never, ever feel right about drinking this water after the sacrifice you made. So we're going to pour it out as an offering to the Lord so our hearts stay fully committed to God. Always remember that when you get strong desires in your heart, the first analysis as you seek the Lord and personally assess that desire is to make sure that it is God's calling on your life, not just what you want. When God fills you with a desire, make sure that your reaction isn't just well that sounds when you have a desire, when, God, when, when something fills your heart and you say, boy, that sounds really good, make sure that that's of the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek His Word. Get wise counsel. Analyze it. Make sure there's no pride in there. Make sure that that's the leading of God and not the leading of your own desires. We've even said that to people about this church. I encourage you only to come here if you really believe the Lord has stirred you to be part of this work. I don't say that with any degree of pride, because I had to assess the same thing in my own heart as I sought the Lord. Lord, is this what you want, or is this what I want? So make sure God is leading you into that, or make sure God's leading you into the other facets of your life as you look for a job or determine how 2011's going to go, or you're sensing a leading and you wonder if that's really. Make sure that's of the Lord before you proceed. Because if you proceed without the Lord's blessing, you're going to get out ahead of Him. And that never goes well. If it's not the attitude and conclusion of our heart that it's the leading of the Lord and to follow the leading of the Lord, it will become our own efforts and our own agendas and our own longings. And how many of us know that the Lord will never, ever bless that? Now look at the second thought and we're going to pray. Not only should we intensely desire the things of the Lord, but we should be immediately decisive about the things of the Lord. The desire of our heart every moment of every day, Lord, I want what you want. Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, I want to have your mind. Lord, I want to serve you. Lord, I want to represent you. Everything's about you. So that should be the preoccupation of our desires. But once the Lord reveals what He wants us to do, the second step is to immediately be decisive about it. David's not thinking, hey, they'll actually do this. He sits back in the cave and says, oh man, I'd love to have some of that water, Bethlehem. That stuff is so good. Boy, that would be refreshing to to my body, yes, but to my spirit. Notice what the three men do they hear the king's voice and they quickly act. They don't say, hey, let's go to the back of the cave. Hey, we need to form a committee. Let's form a committee and let's, let's discuss the implications of going to Bethlehem. Well, I don't believe David was really serious when he was talking about that, so I'm not sure why we're even discussing it. There's always one of those guys in the committee, right? I' not sure why we're even talking about this. I, I think David was just joking around. And then the cynic stands up. There's always a cynic, right? How many know there's always a cynic? How many are the cynic? No I'm just kidding? <laughs> well, Bethlehem is pretty heavily fortified at this point. You know, the Philistines are down there. And, and you know, guys, seriously, they want to kill us. We don't have any resources. We're going to walk 13 miles exposed and we're going to break through the fortification of the Philistines at Bethlehem to go to the well at the gate and get David a drink of water. Are you guys nuts? There's always one guy that talks like that. Or if he doesn't talk that way, he's thinking it and he'll talk to you after the meeting. Are you crazy? There's no team to develop a battle strategy There's no tactical group to plan the route or how we're going to transport the water. There's no subcommittee to figure out who gets to actually hand the water to David. There's no discussion. There's no hesitation. There is just action. They move without fear through the enemy. They sacrifice their own personal time and energy and rest and safety and they bring him the water in spite of overwhelming obstacles. Not because he ordered them to, not because he laid a guilt trip on them, and not because they thought they would score points by doing it. They did it because the king expressed his heart, and out of their love and devotion, they responded. Now think about that just for a minute, because that's a picture of worship. That's a picture of of how we are to live our lives. That's the reasonable service that Paul talks about in Romans 12 the daily sacrifice of self so that we can serve and worship and live for God. So when God says, Here's what I want, we don't say, oh, Come on. Really? I'm going to have to think about that. Let me talk to some people that'll tell me what I want to hear. I don't think I'm going to go to your word. How often when we read scripture and we see something and that light bulb goes on and the Holy Spirit said to us, you need to do that. How often do we say, I will do that without any hesitation right now and I will keep doing it because you told me to. And then how often do we delay and analyze and rationalize, and debate, and take the safe approach that doesn't require any faith, and ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit instead of responding immediately with the power that only comes from God, walking by faith, not by sight, saying, King, because you expressed that, I will do it. I will do it resolutely, I will do it unflinchingly, and I will do it with joy. I don't think those three guys, as they're walking to Bethlehem, are going, oh, mm-hmm. stupid king, okay, we've well, got to go get water, gonna do this, let oh, just show me you can't believe we're doing this, let I can't, Eliezer, I, I don't know what we're doing, why are we doing, crazy king wants water, you think they're doing that? Or do you think there was that sense of adventure and joy? This is going to be great. He doesn't even know we're gone. How long did it take to go 26 miles? Don't you think at some point David went, where are those three guys? So I'm guessing here that this was a stealth mission. Oh, I got to finish. I'm guessing that this was, let's do this in the, And they go down with joy and they sneak through the garrison and they draw the water and <laughs> they think kind of laughing as they come back. Can you picture it? A little extra hop in the step. Think how David's going to enjoy this. Oh, it's going to be great. The king's going to be so happy. And they're not saying, brownie points for us. We're better than the other 27. Oh, we can't wait to give this to the King. you ever noticed how many obstacles and diversions seem to present themselves when you really want to spend time worshiping the Lord? I don't believe it's any coincidence at all that over the last four weeks, some of us who have been really integral in getting the church started have been terribly, terribly sick. I mean, just right now, it hurts to talk because there's such a strong pain in my side. I'm not asking for self-pity, okay? I'm just telling you, we have been so sick and the Lord just keeps, uh, excuse me, the devil just keeps putting obstacle after obstacle. Now, you can look at that and say, Lord, this spiritual opposition is too much. Maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe this isn't what we're supposed to do. And... and, and and you, at that point, can get a little discouraged and say, oh, "I can't do this anymore. Oh, why are we getting hit? This is not even bad spiritual stuff. This is minor stuff." Over and over again, we need to listen intently. All of us now listen. This is my conclusion. We need to listen intently to the voice of the Lord, which sometimes is like a still small voice. And sometimes it's like handwriting on the wall. But let me tell you, when you hear the voice of God, you and I better immediately respond. We better say, like Samuel did, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And when we hear that voice, we better run to it. Now, we don't have a right to say, well, I don't know what that sounds like. How do I distinguish the voice of the Lord? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know it. And we can't say, well, I don't know how to respond to His voice. Jesus said, be holy as I'm holy and I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will give you the power to do what I ask you to do. So we can't just say, well, yeah, I heard the voice of the Lord, but I'm thinking about it. Uh Uh-uh. When the king speaks, we respond. The response of obedience and faith and worship is a response without delay and without debate. It's decisive and it's driven by our love for him. But here's the final obstacle we like to be comfortable. Many times we look at it and we say, well, what's it going to cost me? Do I have to sacrifice something else? Is that what this is all about this morning, Rhodes? you got to sacrifice something. I'm so tired of that message. My time, my money, my opinion, my pride, my not getting attention. What? What's it going to cost me? Let me tell you, it is going to cost you something. And it's usually going to cost you something that you're holding on to so tightly that it's become a matter of pride. And then sometimes we say, Well, Lord... Here are my parameters, like we can set the terms with God. How many know you can't set the terms with the Lord? Oh, oh Lord, here are my parameters. By the way, I want to do your will. Oh, mold me and shape me after your will while I wait and yield it and still. But, great song. I got some limits now. You're going to have to fit it into this. Because if it's not in this, I'm not comfortable. We don't get to set the parameters. We don't get to say, God, don't move me too far out of my comfort zone. God, I, I want to walk by faith, but not in an extreme way. Do you think those thoughts ever cross the mighty men's minds? It's not like they're doing a great work of the Lord. It's like they're fighting a battle. They're walking 13 hilly miles across enemy lines with no military support to get a drink of water from a well for their king. Why? Because they loved him. And they knew God's hand was on him. Instead of operating at the outer edge of God's will, obeying without sacrifice, thinking it's good enough, experiencing minor blessings when God has a whole storehouse he wants to pour out on us like rain, there is a greater response. I'm done. Mighty men and mighty women act by faith based on their love for the Lord. The best obedience is prompted by love, not by law. That's why people who are legalistic don't have joy. Anybody can follow the law. It's following the law because your heart loves the Lord. That's when you obey. It's a bold, decisive action that comes from a heart that's craving what's best. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. I want you to just take a a minute. Thank you for listening so well. Just go before the Lord right now. Empty your mind of all the distractions. Don't think about where you're going to head in five minutes. Just go before the Lord. I hope the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart this morning. And I hope one of the things He has said to you is... I need to continue to live boldly for the Lord. No more passivity. No more comfort over His will. No more self-sufficiency versus prayer and trust and No, No more. I've had enough. I've done that for long enough. Maybe you've been saved 30 years and you're still fighting that battle maybe even save three weeks and you're just learning what it's about. Either way, the only response to the king's voice is immediate and decisive. Not bitterly, but with joy. God's calling you in this next year to something that will stretch your faith. I never would have imagined a year ago I'd be standing here this morning. In each of our lives, God is going to call us to something that is going to stretch our faith. And when His voice speaks to you, how will you respond? Father, we thank You this morning for the living water that is poured out in our lives. We thank you for your sufficiency, which is constant. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who convicts us and teaches us and directs our paths. Lord, now as your children, we want to hear your voice and Lord, we want to obey. We want to follow your will. Lord, mold us, shape us, after Your will. Not after our desires, not after our opinions, not after our agendas. After Your will. And Father, I pray that as we follow Your will, we would do so with the joy that I imagine those three men walking down the hill had in their hearts. We can't wait to bring joy to the King. We want to be pleasing to You We want to honor you in how we live. Lord, help us because we're weak. Help us because we get distracted. Help us because pride is so strong. Continue to humble us and shape us and refine us, we pray. We love you and we praise you this morning for how good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.